This Rarecast is made possible by Global Genes, a leading education and advocacy organization that serves and promotes the needs of patients and families touched by rare and genetic disease. Since 2009, Global Genes has been building awareness, developing patient-focused education and advocacy tools, and funding patient care programs and critical research. To learn more, go to globalgenes.org. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. While there's growing ability to pursue the development of therapies for ultra-rare diseases, they remain challenging because of economics. One major barrier is the difficulty in getting reimbursement for therapies in the absence of well-powered clinical trials that recruit enough participants to satisfy payers' demands for adequate proof of the value of a therapy. The Muscular Dystrophy Association earlier this year awarded the nonprofit biotechnology Cure Rare Disease a grant to research novel reimbursement strategies for ultra-rare disease therapies. We spoke to Rich Horgan, founder and president of Cure Rare Disease, about the evolution of his organization, its growing pipeline of therapies, and why developing a viable reimbursement model is essential to creating sustainable development of ultra-rare disease therapies. Rich, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Talk about your organization, Cure Rare Disease, of the development of gene therapies for underserved, rare, and ultra-rare populations, and work you're doing around the issue of reimbursement of N of 1 therapies. I'd like to start, though, with the evolution of Cure Rare Disease, which has transformed itself into a, a nonprofit biotechnology company. I think you've always had bigger vision than just developing a treatment for your brother, but how has Cure Rare Disease evolved from its early days to what it's seeking to do today? Yeah, happy to happy to kind of shed some light on that. So you're you're right. Uh, Cure Rare Disease very much so started off as an effort to develop a therapeutic to save my brother, and uh, while that's not uh, what happened, the legacy that Terry leaves behind is one in which you know, we now have a framework to be able to treat patients like Terry, not the same disease, not necessarily the same technology, but the framework that we developed to be able to partner with academics, embed our translational regulatory and manufacturing expertise to help drive the development of a drug from bench to academic bedside. And um, there's a lot of Terry's out there. Uh, as you well know, 10% of the United States is impacted by a rare disease. And as we all know, the challenge with rare disease is that, well, you know, collectively, they're 10% of the population. Individually, the population is very heterogeneous. And so the question is, how, how can we develop a new system, a new model to be able to help these folks who have been forgotten, neglected, and overlooked simply because their disease is too rare? And so really therein lies the transformation over the last few years. Uh, we've since launched a number of other drug development programs, not just for Duchenne muscular dystrophy, 
and no longer customized therapeutics. What we're really targeting is uh, rare and ultra rare neuromuscular diseases where we can develop a therapeutic and apply that to a population. And how we do this is by what we did using the framework for my brother's drug, developing relationships and collaborating with academic institutes, bringing on board our translational expertise to help guide the drug from the early days through preclinical development, manufacturing, which of course for gene therapies is very challenging, and ultimately IND submission and then completion of what would be a phase one to a clinical trial. From there, our intention is to sort of basket our technologies depending on the number of patients impacted. So in our case, there are some therapeutics that we're developing that do have commercial potential. If we hand them to a, a, a larger partner on the proverbial silver platter, um, we'd be able to then take the, the, the earned revenue from those therapeutics and then apply them to therapeutics that will simply never be commercializable because they're, they're too rare. And, and while it's not a perfect mechanism, it is a mechanism that at least allows us to continue to expand ultra-rare disease drug development for populations that have just been overlooked and neglected for, for so long. And, and that's a little bit about how, how we've evolved over the last few years. And of course, happy to dive deeper in different buckets. Well, perhaps you can shed some light on how the organization works as a nonprofit biotech relative to the way a more traditional biotech might work. Oh, sure, sure. So the 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 difference is is more so in the financing, right? The the science is the same. The science is is exactly the same as what a more traditional biotech, as you called it, would do. We conduct our our, our pharmacology studies, we conduct our tox studies, uh, we we meet with the FDA in, in different vehicles, we submit our INDs, we we conduct our clinical trials with the top uh, leaders in the field. And so from the R&D perspective, it's actually very similar. Now, it's different from the financing perspective. A traditional biotech can go and sell equity in exchange for dollars that they then apply to R&D. For us as a nonprofit, we don't have equity to trade. And so how we raise money is through different mechanisms. We raise money more through traditional nonprofit settings, such as um, event donations, uh, philanthropic gifts, philanthropic gifts, uh, grants. And things of that nature in an all in an attempt really as we bridge this chasm to get to sustainability until we're able to license off some of our promising commercializable therapeutics um, to accomplish two things. The first, of course, is that earned revenue, which makes us sustainable, which allows us to then apply that revenue to diseases which never will be commercializable. And then the second objective is while we intend to treat a limited patient population in a phase one to a trial. By partnering that therapeutic off, we allow the rest of the population to either participate in clinical trials or someday potentially take advantage of an approved therapeutic. So the difference is really more so in the financing than it is in the R&D, I would say, to kind of summarize everything. You're not a company that's looking to take therapeutics all the way to commercialization. I, I think many people would be surprised to see how large a pipeline you already have. You have about 20 candidates in development, most of which are preclinical, is in, in terms of a typical pipeline, you know, you, you'd see a, a biotech show uh, a candidate either being preclinical, phase one, phase two, all the way through, but you're using a different set of milestones in, in laying out your pipeline. What are the milestones you focus on? It's a good question. Uh, and, and you're right, we do use a different set of milestones. And that's for two reasons. I would say first, the prevailing reason is that 
we really try to be transparent with with the community. We really try to show the community where things are at, what the next step is, um, at, at a greater level of granularity, I would say, than than just preclinical development. Preclinical development can be super long, um, and there's numerous challenges throughout preclinical development that you know we just want to make sure patients understand and appreciate. And also being transparent with donors, being transparent with partners, um, is a pretty big thing. Um, the second reason is is what we're good at is advancing novel technologies from bench to limited patient bedside. Um, we are not an organization that's set up to commercialize a therapeutic across the U.S., across the world. Um, that's not what we're good at. And so we like to focus on what we're really good at and really becoming a master of, of what we do in our own domain. And so, you know, we break down the process for families and others, uh, researchers, other stakeholders, in a sense to be able to understand, okay, where do we start? Okay, we generally start with the assays, a cell line, a, an engineered animal model, if one needs to be engineered or if there is one available to, to use or engineer. And then developing the therapeutic prototype, taking that through the early development in vitro and in vivo efficacy and pharmacology studies, and then showing people where and when we generally meet with the FDA is once we've got you know early in vivo and in vitro data, then we have a pre-IND meeting with the FDA because resources are limited. And so we need to make sure that we're doing the studies that are critical and necessary to do um, both from our own team, but that we also have regulatory buy-in um, as much as possible along the way. And so you'll often hear me say early and often engagement with the FDA. Um, you know, we we really like to treat the FDA as, as much of a collaborator as we're able to. Um, and, and then that ultimately coalesces into, into an early an early clinical trial. So that's generally why we we do it a little bit differently, where you know, sort of know who you are and be good at what you do is is kind of my my theme. The last milestone on your pipeline chart is ready for outlicensing. Would you expect to outlicense to a commercial company or do you envision some other endpoint at which patients who need a therapy can access it such as an open-ended clinical trial? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, I'm, I'm glad you asked that. So um, our, our general intention is to help as many patients as possible. And so to do that, outlicensing to a larger biotech, a larger pharmaceutical company takes advantage, advantage of existing infrastructure that we just don't have. And so while we could maybe dose one or two or three patients a year, a, a larger company can scale up faster um, once the, the technology is known, once there's convincing clinical trial data, and then really run with the ball to treat as many patients as possible. Um, for us, I think the, the question really, really sort of gets at, at how do we make sure we enable access as much as possible? How do we make sure that these drugs don't end up on, on shelves somewhere or deprioritized? And that is really in the art of the negotiation where um, making sure that we have the ability to claw back the technology if development isn't continued, um, and, and also negotiating how do we enable compassionate use and compassionate access or expanded access, uh, depending on sort of the, the 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 program in question and the population in question. And, and that's really important. I mean, that's 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 why I started this is to is to, well, first to to help my brother who had another option, but then um in in discovering so many other, you know, quote unquote Terry's out there, um to be able to help those folks as well and and really paint a path and an ecosystem wherein even the rarest of rare patients can be treated. So I, I hope that kind of answers the question a little bit. I'm happy to kind of dive into that deeper if, if, if I've sort of left anything out. Your pipeline is focused on neuromuscular conditions. Is the plan to continue to focus on these conditions or do you eventually see expanding beyond those? 
Yeah, interesting question as well here. I would say um, for now and in the immediate future, our focus is pretty heavy on neuromuscular and neurodegenerative conditions. That's where our team's experience is. That's where our, our relationships are. Um, what we hope to help others with is by being transparent and by sharing our process and by having conversations like these, we hope to be able to educate and inspire other people in other disease areas, whether it be cancer, whether it be uh, you know, maybe a GI disease or you know, fill in the blank disease. It's not neuromuscular or neurodegenerative. And that's really what we're hoping to do here is, is, is by sharing the playbook, encourage others to participate and, and, and really start their own journey. So you look at our relationship and partnership with sick kids hospital in Toronto and, and a big motivator for that partnership was, okay, how can we learn from the neuromuscular development efforts that we're working on with, with the, with that institution and then draw those over to, to cancer. And, and so that's a, that's a motivation of, of, of sick kids in, in Toronto. Um, and really that gets at the framework, I would say, the, the framework that this is drug development, not necessarily akin to a neuromuscular disease, but it's a process and a framework that involves drug development, but then also involves downstream things that I'm sure we'll talk about, like reimbursement or financing. How do we pay for the ultra rare types of therapeutics and, and who pays for them? One of the compelling aspects of the emerging area of genetic medicines is the potential to compartmentalize aspects of a therapy. And I'm wondering to what extent you're able to leverage the work on one therapy to accelerate the development of others. Is, is there anything you're doing to shorten the path to a clinical trial by using things like the same vectors or in, in any other way? Uh, yeah, in short, yes. So there's a couple different ways to do this. I think sort of as you asked the question, there's a couple points that come to mind. The first is how do we use a platform, uh, you know, such as the same delivery vector? And we we have identified a, a next generation AAV that we're starting to to bake into all of our programs um, as we fully characterize it. And so that's that is a nice way to be able to speed up the development cycle. If we when we do a GLP talk study with the next generation AAV, that will then inform virtually all of our other gene uh, related neuromuscular programs, which is really convenient because then we know the behavior of the capsid, we know the biodistribution, we know sort of the, the safety of it, um, at least in a, in a preclinical setting. And so that's one way. The other way is, is, you know, for instance, we've got mouse engineering work underway where um, getting to common models or learning from lessons previously used to generate one mouse or, or animal models able to inform other ones. That That's another nice way to do it. We also get more familiar with the FDA's expectations um, as we go in front of the agency for more pre-INDs and eventually IND meetings. You know, where where's their mind at? Um, we see things starting to bubble up like what was announced the other day by, by Dr. Marks with you know, how do we expedite rare disease drug development by using biomarkers and things like that. So um, I think drug development gets at least more educated over time. Uh, I don't want to say it gets easier over time because each disease has its own nuance. Each disease has its own unique challenges that, you know, we may not learn, we may not be able to apply learnings from one disease to another in that way, but wherever we can, we, we certainly do. And, and also just getting in the same rhythm of, okay, you know, we've got a couple of our DMD drugs going into, into pre-IND conversations in the coming months. Okay, we, we know how to do this now. You know, then it becomes more of a scale up rather than invent and create. Whereas with my brother's drug, it was very much so like, okay, we as a as a collective are trying to figure out how to how to fly the plane as as we build it, because it was a first in human and and there were a lot of other sort of you know unique nuances, I would say, to that program. So 
in if you take something like being able to use the same tox study over and over, what might that translate in terms of cost savings or time savings? Um, so we can use this. I mean, we're we're always going to need to do some talk study, I think, at least currently, because although you may have characterized the the, the vector, the transgene could still have some toxicity to it. Um, and so, you know, maybe the study's shorter. Maybe the study isn't, um, you know, in in a large animal model. Maybe it's in a mouse, which of course would save, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, maybe the talk study can be a little bit shorter if if we've characterized the promoter, we've characterized the capsid, and just we're changing the transgene here. So so there are very real savings. I mean, just the simple idea of okay, if we can do it in mice instead of NHPs or, or pigs, um, I mean that's that's a lot a lot of time saved to to be able to acquire them since there's an NHP shortage um, and actually conduct the study in between getting all the logistics squared away, um, at least from the from the talks perspective, which I think is where your question was coming from. As you think about efforts around end of one therapies for and therapies for ultra rare diseases, how big a need is there? Is there any way to quantify that? Yeah, I mean, I would say the need is massive, right? When you look at the heterogeneity of the rare disease population, you're already talking about a big number, right? You know, you're talking about what 30 million plus Americans impacted by rare disease. Now, okay, let's remove out the more common rare diseases, you know, maybe ALS, cystic fibrosis you know, Duchenne muscular dystrophy, the more common rare diseases, that leaves this very, very long tail of millions of people that, you know, maybe it's a gene code disease, maybe it's not even discovered yet what the causal gene is. And so, you know, it's it's certainly in the millions in terms of the the number of people that are impacted. And and this is this is a tough one because this is a group that is really overlooked. I mean, when you when you, you know, sort of look at the individual diseases and say, okay, what about you know, uh, uh, make up one, you know, whatever, whatever ADSSL one, for instance, is, is a, is a good one. Cause it's, it's like one in a million in terms of the number of folks it impacts. Um, you know, that's never really, at least unless there's more patients identified and the prevalence changes, that's a disease that's just not going to attract commercial drug development effort. But when you think about the people behind the disease, the people, the families, the patients, you know, their hopes, their dreams, patients don't care how common their disease is. They don't care how rare it is. Um, they just know that they, they want a treatment and, and that's, that's fair. That's totally reasonable. Um, so it's, 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 we need a shift in thinking instead of going disease by disease, which will like take forever in a day. I think, um, we need to think about how can we apply a systems kind of solution to this? You know, I think, I think of Amazon, right before Amazon, before there were, before you could order something and get it in two days, you know, you had to go to 17 different stores or you had to go to the store. It, it was a very inefficient process. And there the stakes are lower, right? It's a bad example in the stakes that if you don't get your widget, you know, you're 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 going to be okay. In the case of rare disease, I think not being able to look at it from a systems-based solution, systems in terms of how do we make a system out of drug development? How do we make a system out of, of financing? Um, there the costs are way higher. There the cost is death in some cases. And that's a very sobering, sobering thought, at least for me, in the sense that we can't just keep tackling this from disease to disease to disease to disease. It, it just doesn't work. So let's talk about what are two big challenges for developing therapies for either N of one or ultra rare populations. And the, the first of those would be, how do you scale development of these therapies and provide a mechanism for patient access to get them these medicines affordably. So 
how do you think about scaling? What's the challenge there? Yeah, I, I think it depends on where you're asking the question from. For us, the challenge in scaling is 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 how do we you know continue to raise enough capital to be able to apply this to more diseases and really expand the scope and scale of of the mission. That's one big reason why it's helpful to teach others how to do this process and be very transparent, so that we encourage and inspire other institutions, other foundations, other families to follow this track and really take. Um, ownership and control, I would say, over the process to make sure that it does end in the hands of patients, assuming it's FDA approved and, you know, all that is safe and efficacious. Um, the other challenge with ultra rare disease is that, you know, the, the traditional drug development process, even for rare disease, involves well-powered clinical trials. And with well-powered clinical trials, the challenge is, well, you need enough patients. And so it's, you know, kind of a paradox problem where you don't have enough patients to run a well-powered clinical trial, which isn't going to, if you don't, then you won't get commercial approval. And then if you don't get commercial approval, the insurance company isn't going to pay for it because they're going to say, well, you don't have a well-powered clinical trial. You don't have commercial approval. You know, sorry, come back when you do. And so it's it's very much so this catch-22 of, you know, how how can we run smaller clinical trials with ultra rare populations um, and get that approval? Um, that's the sort of thinking I think we need to start to pursue um, as we think about treating the the really the rarest of the rare. Um, and, and there's a slew of other challenges, I think, too. But those are two of the most common ones that, that at least I think of on a, on a day to day basis and a real pragmatic challenge, too. Um, I think, you know, you need regulatory changes to be able to um, support clinical trials um, that have more biomarker driven data potentially or biomarker driven endpoints potentially. Um, and then you also need to, to work with the payers to say, hey, this isn't going to be, you know, a type two diabetes clinical trial. This is a small population, albeit a very expensive in all likelihood population to the payers. Um, and so how, how we sort of potentially reimagine uh, either a, a financing or a reimbursement mechanism to treat these patients um, depends on if we think we can get ever get commercial approval. And if not, then we need to look at it a very different way. And so right now it isn't really possible to get commercial approval for the really the ultra rare diseases because there's not enough patients. And so our approach has been, how do we reimagine a financing process or begin to do that wherein these patients could still get treatment. They don't have to mortgage their house. It's not inherently inequitable. Um, and at the end of the day, the patient can still get help. I think from the earliest days, you were talking about the issue of reimbursement for these therapies. What's the case for making these therapies reimbursable? I, I even caution to use the word reimbursement at this point, because if you think about reimbursement, that means you need to shell the money out to then get the money back. And so you know, if if you're a family that has a that has you know one or two kids impacted by an ultra rare disease, you know you still need to go raise the three plus million dollars it's going to take to go from academic bench to patient bedside. Um, and so, while reimbursement might be promising, there it's like okay, you still have a serious working capital problem. Um, and and so, what what we're beginning to look at and 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 start to develop thinking around is this idea of, you know, would it be possible to um, have some sort of federal funding mechanism that A, was fast, and I think fast is a very important word there, um, and then B, not contingent upon uh, a successful clinical trial because then you would still have the reimbursement problem. And so what does it look like if, you know, a promising therapeutic effort had all the preclinical work done as it should, received IND approval, 
and then that that would trigger the the a payment of some sort to either direct to a manufacturer or a direct to a hospital to cover the costs of the drug and the clinical trial because that's really the expensive part when you look at the breakdown of these costs the 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 preclinical academic work is not the most expensive sort of bucket in this it, it really is the the drug product and the clinical trial and, um, and are you, you focused solely on the federal government or do you see a role for private payers to play in funding ex the use of experimental therapies yeah i would say it's definitely too early to to say i think we're sort of in the stage of developing um just recently bringing on a um uh, a, a payments uh executive um onto the team to be able to help us think through and develop what could a blueprint look like so i think it's too early to answer that question i think you know, it's going to take everybody, right? It's not going to be one group that we can pick on. It, it, I think this really needs to be the type of blueprint and model that has the, has the buy-in from the privates, from the publics, um, so that this can work as a rising tide to lift all boats, not just cure a diseases boat, but other diseases outside of neuromuscular. But, you know, potentially, and I, I sort of underscore potentially, because I said it's early, still in the thinking, but potentially, um, you know, draw the line around non-commercializable, less than X number of patients, um, that type of thinking where, where you sort of draw the fence posts around what, what this would cover. And that'll be very important to public and private payers downstream. Um, but it's still pretty early in this process, but we're, we're, we're really taking off efforts now um, with adding some, some support to the team to really sketch out what a, what a, what a model could look like. And then pressure testing that model um, with their various stakeholders. And how critical do you think finding such a mechanism will be for the sustainability of N of one therapies and making them a viable therapeutic route? Yeah, it's it's critical, right? Because I mean, when you look at the cases so far for us, for for other efforts that have gone on, N of one or N of a few, right? It, it's not just N of one. It's 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 really the ultra rare, non commercializable type type patient populations that we're we're looking at here. Um, it's critical because you, you you can't expect you can't expect people to, you know, raise three, four, five million dollars when they're trying to provide care for their kids. They're trying to keep a job. You know, it's it's you can only stack so much on people's backs before it's like enough is enough, you know. Um, so I think in order for this field to blossom, this field of ultra rares and, and of ones, we need a clear path to to payment. We know the technology is there for the most part, right? We've got ASOs, we've got CRISPR, we've got gene replacement, we've got, you know, all sorts of different RNA-based therapeutics that are popping up. And so it seems like for, for many of these diseases, not all, for many of these diseases that the technology question is there, the pieces are there. Now it's up to the individuals behind, you know, the different diseases to bring them together in a way that ushers a drug from idea to the bench side. But the piece that's still really not there is the payment mechanism. Um, you know, there's some programs like the NIH's urgent program, but, you know, you've got a nine month waiting period almost between when you drop the application to when you may get funded. And I underscore may because um, it's competitive and it's it's the NIH. And so, you know, nine months, the patient could be dead. So so to me, programs like that suffer from sort of a lack of reality um, where there's a huge gap there. And, and that's a huge problem. In February, the Muscular Dystrophy Association awarded Cure Rare Disease a $30,000 grant to support research of novel reimbursement strategies for drugs developed for ultra-rare diseases. In today's world, what does it take to get reimbursed for a therapy? 
So generally, uh, we've spoken to a number of executives at, at the big at the big private payers um, here in the United States, and generally, it's it's two things. Um, you know, the first is like I mentioned before, well powered clinical trials. You know, they want to see convincing data from trials that convince them that okay, we apply therapeutics, something good happens. The other thing is is from a regulatory perspective as well is is that BLA or the NDA um, to enable the commercialization to enable that to be sold as a product and then eventually to be reimbursed by by payers. Um, and you can clearly see the challenge with putting ultra rare diseases through that same model. It's like, well, this model was literally never designed for that. But now we have the tools. We have the tools to go in and be able to change even for a single patient's mutation, you know, potentially the outcome there. And so it, it's really the the sort of the human made uh, elements that need to catch up with technology as it usually is. And in, as you think about uh, some kind of a funding model for these conditions, are, are you imagining funding therapies that don't necessarily go through a regulatory approval process? Uh, I, I wouldn't go that far, right? I think above all, the United States does a really good job at making sure that drugs are generally safe. Um, and so I, I definitely would caution any attempt to sort of skirt the regulatory approval process. Um, you know, things still need to be safe and they still need to have potential benefit of efficacy at the end of the day. I'm not suggesting skirting the process, but the reality is that many of these drugs, you won't be able to justify the expense of what is now understood to be a clinical trial to gain enough broad evidence without, mm -hmm. where, you know, where patients may be treated in, in a long-term, ongoing, never-ending clinical trial, I imagine. Yeah, it's 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 a it's a good point, and 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 I agree. No shortcuts on safety is is key. Um, you know, it's sort of curious how, how could we get away with potentially smaller clinical trials, or can we follow patients over longer durations of time to see how the therapeutic works? Um, I don't know that there's sort of a clear answer there today, um, and I think a lot of it depends on on the technology at hand too. Of you know, what are we looking at here? Is this is this a gene replacement? Is this a gene editing? Um, and, and, and what downstream effects can we, can we expect from that? So it, it's, there, there's not a clear answer today, but, you know, starting to think about, can we do smaller clinical trials? Can we follow patients differently? Things like that may help, may help reduce the burden on needing so many patients. And there's people far smarter than I that, that think about this, I'm sure in a way that we can, we can develop creative solutions. You mentioned just bringing on a payment expert. How are you going about the project that you're doing with the Muscular Dystrophy Association funding? Yeah, so the, the first piece was to really identify the, the key talent. So you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a big believer in get the right people in the room and good things will happen. And so for us, uh, while we'll share more details around this in the coming days um, or coming weeks, I should say, getting somebody who's well-versed in in, in really ideating, brainstorming, practical, novel solutions of payment was key. And so um, that was the first piece. Then the second piece is, okay, what could something look like? And what could something look like really derives from um, the expertise that we bring on? And then more importantly, what does this look like to others? So taking this to, uh, you know, big payers, private payers, public payers, um, regulatory stakeholders, trying to define the universe of stakeholders and then taking this in front of them and, and getting their feedback. You know, I think it's about trying to kick the tires on something. So at, at the end of the day, what we have is a straw man. And then that straw man is um, pressure tested 
And then out the other end comes a system that, okay, now we need to, now we need to politic this. Is this, does this require legislation? Does this require changes in, in policies at different organizations? That sort of detail, I think, will become much clearer as we develop pressure tests and then try to roll this out over the coming years. And it's a start, right? I, I, I have no sort of um, illusions that this is a, a, a one team or a one, a one person sport. This will very much so take a, a collaborative effort between, you know, multiple rare disease organizations, all vying for very similar things. I think at the end of the day, nobody's going to argue that, yeah, re redefining a payment mechanism for ultra rare diseases is, is really important. And what's the anticipated end product of the initial project and what's the timing for it? Yeah, so we uh, anticipate a basically, uh, you know, more or less a, a blueprint, a, a PDF, you know, PowerPoint to to put it practically that really lays out what could something look like, what are the what are the requirements, what are the um, what are the expectations from the drug developer, what how, when and how would payment be triggered, when and how and who would payment be triggered for, um, where does payment come from? The, these sort of nitty gritty little details that. Um, you know, from a 30,000 foot view don't matter, but when you get into the everyday trenches of it matter very greatly, especially when it comes to, to capital exchanging hands. Um, and so in terms of the timing, you know, we're expecting to roll this out over the coming months and then we'll look to pressure test it in, in the ensuing months after that. So, you know, this is not an overnight project. This is not a quick hit. I mean, this is a, a big challenge, um, but it's something that it's very worth investing time into because there, there's a lot of suffering out there and, it, and a lot of it's, you know, life is anything but fair and anything but just. But if we can, if we can introduce and, and usher into the world collectively uh, a, a way to finance ultra rare disease drug development, then, 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 you know, you can sleep pretty soundly at night knowing you helped a lot of people. Rich Horgan, founder and president of Cure Rare Disease. Rich, thanks as always. Thank you very much, sir. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The BioReport, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.